So by now, you should probably know that sometimes the most important records are not necessarily those that sell a million copies. They don't always come with Grammy Awards, and there are times when you can't even say that they come with any discernible commercial success whatsoever. But that's not always the point. Sometimes the most important records are important because of what they represent, because of what they mean. And maybe it means something to a particular genre or to a particular audience or to other musicians. Sometimes a record becomes important simply by the manner by which it was made. In this particular case, this is a story of a band that spoke to a generation of angry, disaffected youth that had grown desperate for something to believe in, something that they could call theirs, something that was in many ways life-changing. We've talked about the Velvet Underground, the New York Dolls, the Patti Smith Group, the MC5, the Sex Pistols, but in the world of hardcore, this is an album which always tops the list, and that's why it's today's pick from Banksy's enormous record collection. Today, we're going to take a look at the 1981 full-length debut from Black Flag. This is Damaged on Baxi's Musical Podcast. What is it? What is it? It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. In 1981, the band Black Flag released their first full-length debut album after numerous failed attempts to do so. This was a band out of Hermosa Beach, California, that spent five years of relentless touring, personnel changes, legal issues, and constant police intervention before they even got to the point when they settled on a lead singer, never mind record their first album. And yet in spite of all of that, it would be Black Flag that would become the most iconic and important band to emerge from the West Coast hardcore scene in the early 80s. And their first album, Damaged, is not only considered to be their defining statement, but one of the defining statements of the entire genre. But the story surrounding the band and the album is pretty intense because most other bands would have given up and fallen apart long before ever getting a chance to record that record. In order to understand the Black Flag story, You have to start from as far back as 1966, where future Black Flag leader Greg Ginn started a mail-order company selling modified World War II-era radio equipment out of his house. The name of the company was called Solid State Tuners, or SST. He started this company when he was only 12 years old. When I was 12, I watched cartoons. I wasn't ambitious enough to start my own business and produce a catalog of my current inventory. I've never had an inventory. In other words, Greg Ginn was a little bit more ambitious than every other 12-year-old kid in America. Nevertheless, SST would thrive for the next 10 years until Greg discovered that what he really wanted to do was to start a band. And so in 1976, he formed a band called Panic with his friend Keith Morris, who was originally supposed to play drums, but that changed when Morris allegedly started singing along and flailing his body in the SST offices to Search and Destroy by Iggy Pop and the Stooges. At that point, Greg Ginn decided that perhaps Keith Moore should forget about drumming, but instead should be the band's lead singer. So Panic was off to a great start. There was just one problem. There were two bands named Panic. That's when Greg's brother Raymond Pettibone suggested the name Black Flag instead. He not only suggested the name, but Raymond, who was a budding artist, also presented the guys with the idea for a logo, but not just any logo. It was four black vertical bars which represented a flag 
that would become one of the most iconic band logos of all time. The logo represented everything that the white flag of surrender did not. It represented aggression, anger, anarchy. It was totally badass to the point where it remains one of the most identifiable logos in rock music, as well as the mission statement of one of its most iconic bands. Black Flag would play house parties, schools, picnics, public parks. They played everywhere relentlessly, even when audiences didn't want them to. And when they weren't playing gigs, Greg Ginn insisted that they rehearse every day for up to three hours a day. Their notorious work ethic matched the intensity of their music, and they never let up. And by January of 1978, Black Flag would record their first EP called Nervous Breakdown, featuring Greg Ginn and guitar, Keith Morris on vocals, Brian McDowell on drums, and bass player Gary McDaniel. Five songs, lasting a total of five minutes and 13 seconds. The title track alone took up the entire first side at two minutes and seven seconds. And the only record company that agreed to release the EP was a company called Bomp Records. Bomp was a small L.A.-based label that was owned by former fanzine publisher Greg and Susie Shaw. Bomp would later go on to release music from The Stooges, The Modern Lovers, Stiv Baders, The Romantics, The Germs, and Devo. What they didn't get around to was releasing the first EP from Black Flag. In fact, the band had become so frustrated by Bomp's inability to release the record that Greg Ginn took back the Nervous Breakdown Masters and decided to release it himself exactly one year after it was recorded by repurposing his mail-order company to become SST Records. Now, this is important because from this point forward, SST Records becomes the standard for the DIY approach that winds up defining hardcore for the next 35 years. In this case, SST was able to print 2,000 copies of the first EP, which gave Black Flag instant credibility as the band started to head into the next phase of their career, but this time without most of the band. Only Greg Ginn stuck around as the remaining member. Because soon after the release of the first EP, Black Flag then needed a new drummer. After Migdal left after several months, he was replaced by Julio Valencia, later known as Robo. And after struggling to find a reliable bass player to stick with the band for more than just a few weeks, the band eventually added Chuck Dukowski, whose energy with the band helped embellish Ginn's tireless do-it-yourself effort. Dukowski worked just as tirelessly as Ginn to find gigs, plaster posters anywhere he could find space, many of which were designed by Raymond Pennybone. Chuck would eventually manage the band even when he was no longer an active playing member. And by December of 1979, 11 months after the release of the first EP, Keith Morris quit the band after a fallout with Ginn, leaving the band in the middle of recording what they hoped would be their first full-length record. By the end of the month, Morris would become the lead singer of the band The Circle Jerks, which had a pretty remarkable career as well. But in Black Flag, Keith Morris was replaced by former Red Cross lead singer Ron Reyes. Now, what's important about this time period wasn't just that Black Flag was on to their second lead singer. Black Flag's reputation was bolstered immeasurably during the filming of the documentary film The Decline of Western Civilization by Penelope Spheris. The film showcased a number of L.A. bands, including X, The Germs, Fear, The Circle Jerks, and, of course, Black Flag, just after Ron Reyes joined the band. Suddenly, Black Flag's profile was growing swiftly as the band's touring schedule would start to expand towards other parts of the country. And normally, that would be a good thing. But the reputation of the band, and particularly the audiences, were starting to be known as a problem. Many of Black Flag shows at the time were being met with bouts of violence, and the result of that violence led to police intervention, sometimes making the violence even worse. However, what that violence forced the band to do 
was to become more creative in establishing a network between other bands and fanzines of which clubs would let them play and which towns to avoid. It was a pretty sophisticated system that was spearheaded by Chuck Tukowski and also involved bands like DOA and the Dead Kennedys and many others. Remember, this is a time before the Internet and social media would make that kind of thing real simple. This was old school stuff that was meant to protect and serve others within the scene. Now, of course, this is Black Flag we're talking about here. So more changes were on the way as both Chuck Dukowski and Greg Ginn started discussions with former Red Cross guitar player Des Kadena about joining the band as well. But very quickly, Ron Reyes was ready to quit the band after only a few months, leaving just as the band was getting ready to record their second attempt at a full-length record. With no other vocal prospects in mind, Black Flag then elevated the newly hired Des Kadena to become the band's third lead singer. And while Kadena recorded the vocal parts on the new EP, the Ron Reyes version of those songs would be used in the final mix of their second EP entitled Jealous Again. This time, six songs clocked in at over just six minutes in length. And the mixes of the Des vocals would later appear in the Black Flag compilation, Everything Went Black in 1982. The first Dez vocals will be heard on Black Flag's very first single, which included a version of Louie Louie with the B-side Damaged One, which would later show up when they finally got around to recording Damaged. What should be pointed out here is that prior to this, Dez Kadena had never sung a day in his life, and while being the lead singer of Black Flag was a pretty big deal at the time, singing those songs with that much intensity was getting harder and harder to do, and the longer he continued to front the band, the more strain that it put on his voice. Nevertheless, their next EP entitled Six Pack was released in June of 1981. This time it was three songs long, totaling five minutes in length. And with the release of the EP came even more touring, especially on the East Coast. But again, the songs were damaging Dez's voice. He certainly didn't want to leave the band, so he convinced Greg Ginn and Chuck Dukowski that he should finish the tour until they found another lead singer, at which point he would then play rhythm guitar to Greg Ginn's lead in Black Flag. The problem was now you're looking at your fourth lead singer in four years. Again, most bands would not survive a third lead singer, never mind a fourth one. Nor would most bands survive it if they entered the most important phase of their career. And oh yeah, let's not forget the complication of trying to find that next guy. Especially because the guy that you needed probably wasn't going to be found anywhere near Hermosa Beach, California. Because you've just about been through every possible lead singer in the entire area. Instead, they would find their guy working as an assistant manager of a haagen ice cream shop in the Georgetown section of Washington, D.C. Enter 19-year-old Henry Garfield. Garfield had been the lead singer of a band known as State of Alert, or SOA. The band had only played a handful of gigs, but did manage to record an EP called No Policy. It would eventually be released in 1981, but prior to that, Henry and his best friend Ian Mackay, who would later front Minor Threat, would get their hands on those early Black Flag EPs. Ian and Henry were so enthusiastic about Black Flag that Henry wrote to Chuck Dukowski, offering the band a place to stay at his parents' house the next time they came to Washington. Henry and Ian went to every show they could afford, and impressed with Henry, Chuck Dukowski gave him a cassette copy of the band's new EP, Six Pack, which, of course, Henry committed to memory. In December of 1980, Black Flag appeared in New York. Henry, who had the night off from haagen got to the city and went to the show. Because he had already established a friendship with the guys, Dukowski invited Henry up on stage to sing a song of his choice. His choice was a song off the cassette called Clocked In, and Henry nailed the living bejesus out of it. 
after the show, Henry was told to come by the Tucasa Studios in New York the following day and hang out. What it really was was an audition. And after burning through the entire six-pack EP twice, only with Dez on rhythm guitar, the guys invited Henry to join the band. Suddenly, 19-year-old Henry Garfield would become the lead singer of his favorite band and change his name to Henry Rollins. The very next day, Henry Rollins quits his job as the assistant manager of Hagen dazs sold his car, got the black flag tattoo, and then caught up with the band in Detroit. From there, he worked as a roadie with the band and learned their entire set list, including the songs that would wind up on the first full-length record. Now think about that. One minute you're scooping cones of chocolate Belgian chocolate chip. The next minute you're being asked to become the lead singer of your favorite band. And within just a month or two, you're in a studio to record one of the most iconic pieces of hardcore ever committed to vinyl. And you're not even 21 yet. So in October of 1981, after multiple tries, Black Flag finally begins work on the debut record at Unicorn Studios in West Hollywood. With the backing tracks already put together, Henry Rollins would belt out classics like Rise Above, Give Me, Gimme, Gimme, Damaged One, and TV Party with some of the most aggressive vocals the band had ever seen. As the production of the album wrapped up, Ginn negotiated a distribution deal with Unicorn Studios, which happened to have an association with MCA Records. In theory, this should have been a great thing for Black Flag, but of course, this is Black Flag we're talking about here. And if there's a way for a record to get all jammed up, Black Flag would probably be the ones to find it. On December 5th, 1981, Black Flag released the album. Unicorn Records pressed 25,000 copies of the record and were ready to start shipping it to retailers. However, just before it was released, Joe Bergamo, the president of MCA Records, listened to the record and deemed that Damage carried a distinctly anti-parent message. As a result, MCA refused to distribute the record, despite the fact that you had 25,000 copies printed, shrink-wrapped, and ready to go. Regardless, MCA wanted no part of Black Flag, meaning that Unicorn Records would have to do it themselves. The only problem was that Unicorn was severely mismanaged and deeply in debt, so much so that MCA severed their relationship with Unicorn too. So now you have 25,000 copies of the record that no one was prepared to deal with, and each copy printed with an MCA logo that MCA wanted nothing to do with. Now you might think that Black Flag would have given up altogether at this point, except this is Black Flag, a do-it-yourself band that has its own record label. So in keeping with Greg Ginn's independent work ethic, SST obtained all 25,000 copies. They placed a sticker over the MCA logo that quoted Joe Bergamo saying, quote, as a parent, I find this record anti-parent. And then they distribute the album all by themselves. The result of that decision compelled Unicorn Records to take Black Flag to court for breach of contract. The lawsuit prevented Black Flag from releasing a follow-up album for another two years. In the meantime, SST would go on to release records from The Minutemen, The Meat Puppets, and later Husker Du. So how did Damaged fare after all of this? Well, not great. The album was largely ignored by critics, but those that did give it a chance raved about it. And with a two-year gap in between this and their next album, Damaged saw its reputation grow wider and wider as the months went on. This was clearly a cut above much of the other hardcore records that were being produced at the time. Damage was something special and defining with its powerful cover of Henry Rollins punching a mirror to the Raymond Pettibone logo to its lineup of punk rock anthems. 
Damaged is an album that casts a long and imposing shadow. It's not only considered to be one of the great statements of hardcore, it's also considered to be one of the great albums in rock and roll history. In 2017, Pitchfork.com listed Damaged at number 20 as the top 100 albums of the 80s. And in 2012, Rolling Stone ranked it among the top 500 albums of all time at number 340. Black Flag would go on to release six more studio albums between 1984 and 2013. And while most bands would have folded long before any of this would have happened, Black Flag's influence has been incalculable, inspiring several generations of fans and musicians at independent record labels for years to come. And while members of the band have come and gone over the years, Greg Ginn continues to be the lone force behind Black Flag's relentless reputation and longevity. Even now, at 67 years old, Greg Ginn's vision has sustained the band and especially SST Records for the next 20 years, releasing music from Soundgarden, Bad Brains, Sonic Youth, Dinosaur Jr., The Descendants, The Screaming Trees, and tons more. By the end of the 90s, SST's luster was being overshadowed by other independent labels that were emerging around the country. But the example that SST set, and especially as it relates to the influence of Black Flag, was immeasurable. And that's why Damage from Black Flag, their best album, is today's selection on Baxi's enormous record collection. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. You can always share it, rate it, and tell all your friends about it. And you can also email me at baxatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. Next time on Baxi's enormous record collection, we're going to take a look at one of the most important records released in the 1980s. Coming up next time on Baxi's Musical Podcast.